K-A-L-W. You know, I don't think there's enough rites of passages these days. We explore the evolving culture of quinceañeras. And they've changed a lot over time. Las cosas han cambiado muchísimo ahora. A new story from our series, Culture Keepers. Then, what's being done to ease the pressure in one of the country's most expensive housing markets? San Francisco is an outlier. About 200 more days to give a permit out than the next closest place. And we look at what happens when you integrate shelter as a fundamental element to recovery. We would always be brokering housing or saying, oh, if we could only get this person housed as they cycled in and out of the emergency department to streets. A story from our award-winning series, Housing as Healthcare. I'm Lisa Morehouse, in for Hanat Baba, and this is Cross Currents. Turning a year older is exciting for a lot of teenage girls, but turning 15 for a young Latina is a unique celebration. We invite you to a quinceañera in this new story from our series, Culture Keepers, profiling people who uplift traditions in their Bay Area communities. I was very much fascinated by bells and lights and whistles. It's my role to learn it well and protect it and keep it. Alors, je, je vais faire l'explication en anglais. <laughs> Soyez tolérant. <laughs> Just the energy and the drive that they have, like the future is looking f***ing golden. Quinceañeras mark the end of childhood and the introduction of womanhood amongst friends, family, and society. Often, both parents and daughters plan and envision their perfect party. But these quinceañeras don't just happen. They take planning, community support, and imagination. KALW's Steffi Puerto brings us this story. It's a Friday night at a banquet hall in Hayward, and the sun is setting. People in dressy party clothes arrive greeting relatives, and enjoying the appetizer table. Bienvenidos y bienvenidas a nombre de nuestra bella quinceañera, Dulce Esmeralda. Welcome to the quinceañera party of Esmeralda Dulce Gonzalez. Dulce is rocking a poofy green dress, adorned with flowers and green rhinestones on the sleeves. Her party theme? Eh, bosque. Forest. Me, me gusta mucho la naturaleza, el color because she loves nature. Dulce is originally from Guatemala. She arrived in the United States over a year ago, and she is now a sophomore in high school. Like many girls her age, she's excited to celebrate her quinceañera with her closest friends and family. The lights begin to dim, and people settle in their seats at round tables set with golden plates and flower centerpieces. The ceremony begins. A quinceañera is the celebration of a young girl marking the end of childhood and the emergence of womanhood amongst friends, family, and society. Quinceañeras have traditionally been reserved for girls. The word literally means a 15-year-old girl. Ahora llamamos a la dama representante de 13 y 14 años the DJ invites up different people from her life who have supported her in her journey to reaching 15. Her godparents, her royal court made up of her friends, her mother, and uncle. I've been to my fair share of quinceañeras. 
and I've never seen a candlelight ceremony before. That's the thing about quinceañeras. They're all different and unique in their own way. Por último, llamamos a la dama de honor. Por favor, fuerte los aplausos. Quinceañeras are celebrated all throughout Mexico and Latin America, taking influences from different regions, religions, and now social media. Everyone celebrates quinceañeras to their own taste. And they've changed a lot over time. Las cosas han cambiado muchísimo ahora. This is Alma Bias, the event planner and caterer for tonight. Usan colores fuertes, usan muy extravagantes. Alma says quinceañeras have become more extravagant, with brighter colors and more elaborate clothes. Alma would know. She's basically the quinceañera expert. Tonight, she's arranged everything from the flowers to the decorations. And she's made a career out of this. Uh, siempre tuve la curiosidad desde que estaba en México. Me gustó mucho todo lo de lo que se trataba en bodas y quinceañeras y lo de eventos. Me gustaba mucho. Entonces, Alma's always had an interest in the world of quinceañeras. Alma is from Sinaloa, Mexico. That's where she started making dresses. She moved to the U.S. and opened up her own dress shop in the 90s. When she first opened up her store, she was making dresses herself. Then she began expanding her business to event planning, making decorations, and catering. Her quinceañera, though, it wasn't that extravagant. She says, it was a simple event, but done with a lot of love. It marked a real change in her life. Because before then, she wasn't allowed to wear makeup or heels or go out dancing. She says, now things are different. Young girls might already wear makeup or dress more like women. When girls come in and she sees them, she asks herself, is this the girl that is turning 15 years old? The culture around coming of age has changed, but the tradition of the quinceañera remains the same, including the importance of community. Here's Dulce's mom, Marta González. Oh, pues, trabajo, desvelo, colaboración y ayuda de... Martha says, this event took hard work, sleepless nights, and collaboration from coworkers and family members. And they don't just help out. They take on paying for specific parts of the event. Quinceañeras can be expensive, but they have a way of bringing people together to share the financial burden. La última muñeca, or the last doll, is one of the traditions that has stayed the same. Dulce's godmother hands her a porcelain doll wearing the same color dress and accessories as Dulce. The doll symbolizes saying goodbye to toys and the ending of childhood. You know, I don't think there's enough rites of passages these days. This is LaDonna Dixon, Dulce's English second language teacher. And then to have a rite of passage for a girl, it's just really a young woman. It's just really inspiring, and it's focused on her. I love that. This is a rite of passage that has lasted throughout many changes in culture. Now even some boys are having their own versions of quinceañeras. But it's still a tradition that kids dream about. I asked the kids at the party if they want their own quinceañera and got an enthusiastic. Sí. 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 Yo voy a cumplir 15 años también. 
Entonces vamos a poner las dos copas al frente. Then everyone raises their champagne glasses for the brindis, or toast, to celebrate Dulce's quinceañera. Uno, dos, y tres. Por esta bendición y que se escuchen fuertes esas palmas. Although Dulce was a person of honor, this party was a community effort. From Alma, the event planner, to the family who pitched in, to the people who are going to stay to clean up after the night is over. In Hayward, I'm Steffi Puerto for Cross Currents. Steffi is a fellow in our audio academy. You can find more stories like this one at kalw.org slash crosscurrents. Qué linda está la mañana en que vengo a saludarte. Venimos todos con gusto y placer a felicitarte. El día en que tú naciste, nacieron todas las flores. You're listening to Cross Currents from KALW News. I'm Lisa Morehouse, in for Hanat Baba. Next up is an excerpt from a town hall we held at our pop-up event space at 220 Montgomery. Yesterday, we heard from the panel discussing the issue of homelessness in San Francisco. Today, we tackle the sister issue of this city's housing. And this conversation, moderated by KALW's executive producer, Ben Trefney, we hear from Sujita Srivastava, the Director of Housing and Planning Policy at SPUR. Anika Hum, an equality reporter for Mission Local, and Assemblymember Matt Haney. In this excerpt, we start with a question from Ben about the pushback some housing developers face. There is a proposal at 22nd and Mission on the former site of a building that burned in 2015, and it killed one person, and it displaced many others, including Mission Local's offices itself. And the proposal that the developer wants to do is to build a 10-story building there. And that's gotten a lot of pushback that you've reported on. I mean, I think that's an interesting example. Because of the history, like, the neighborhood feels really strongly about what happens on that lot. Um, Because obviously there was a fire and the same owner has control over it. And they just feel that it should be 100% affordable, basically, um, because also the way that it had been run in the past um, kind of caused, you know, maybe some unsafe conditions uh, leading to a death. But it's interesting because, yeah, I think that is the perfect example of, you know, it's kind of like a compliant project. And so that could get passed, whether or not, like, the community, like, wants it or not, um, the industry is kind of trying to get away from having, like, community input like that, like, discretionary, unnecessary, like, yeah, unnecessary, like, feedback that would, like, delay a project. I mean, there hasn't been housing there since, like, 2015, so that's, like, a long time. A lot of people that could be housed. Well, and in this case, this is 
a spot where there was a public hearing. There's all these neighbors who come around. There's like, right. we need it to be 100% affordable housing. We don't yeah. like this proposal at all. Yeah. It was from your reporting, it was yeah. pretty universal. That was the response. Yeah. Um, and then that's what ends up triggering the planning department in San Francisco often to right. set things up into uh, long discussions that delay projects, right, Assemblymember Haney? Yes, and San Francisco has more opportunities for appeals than anywhere else. I mean, this is what the analysis that the state did, uh, and the numbers are, are, are pretty in, in incredible in terms of how much San Francisco is an outlier, uh, about 200 more days to approve a project and 200 more days to give a permit out than the next closest place. So not than the average, than the next closest. And so what that leads is not only for folks to not come and propose projects here and build new housing, but also this affects affordable housing. Uh, there's a, a project in the Sunset District that has been appealed and appealed and appealed and appealed all the, all the way, uh, and it's taken years more than it would take anywhere else. And so- Is that one at 12th uh, and Irving? Is that 12th, and, 12th and Irving, I believe. Uh, and it was actually uh, initiated some a piece of legislation that we put forward this year that passed and was signed uh, that will stop those kinds of appeals because I mean, there's the example of uh, market rate housing that folks want to turn into 100% affordable, but 100% affordable uh, projects here are near impossible to get through and go through even more harsh processes. So I, I think when we when we look at uh, the things that need to change and the scale of what we need to do here, I mean, we've 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 committed to 10,000 units uh, a year here to meet our uh, the goals. And that's what we need to build. Uh, about half of that has to be affordable. And so if we have a situation where every single project is facing all these additional layers of appeals and reviews and, and, and all of that, uh, it's gonna be prohibitively expensive, uh, including for the affordable, and it's, and it's not gonna get done. So there, there's a lot of aspects of this on you know, zoning and investments and affordable and massive bonds that are needed. Uh, but some of it, yes, is that we have more process here and that adds to cost and it makes it so things just are not getting done. But process isn't that easy to undo. I mean, you know, I feel like one of the things about San Francisco or a lot of other Bay Area cities for that matter is that there's a lot of, let's just say, for the benefit of the doubt, good intentioned legislation that's put into place to protect people, to create more equity, uh, to give people a say, to make sure that people are heard and that things are fair. And that just piles up and piles up until you end up in a situation like this, right? Uh, so that is the necessary process. What's the way forward? I mean, you work on Bay Area issues like this, Sujata. Can you envision a path forward to 10,000 housing units in San Francisco a year for the next eight years? There is a path forward. I mean, it's not easy because we're facing a lot of difficult economic headwinds right now. So it's going to be a little bit tricky to get there because the private market isn't really operating at, at the way that it needs to. On I mean, top because of the other interest rates On top of all of the other issues. So I will say it's not going to be easy, but there is capacity. It's not that we don't have the capacity for it. I think part of it is a lot of the exclusion of multifamily housing on, especially in the West Side and, and some central parts of the city is a legacy of segregation. 
So I think who are you protecting is an important question to ask. Um, and what tools are you using to protect people? How are you balancing the needs of people who are not here but would like to be here and those folks who have been lucky enough to have inherited their homes from generations ago or inherited their wealth from generations ago. Or benefited from redlining of other people. Right. And I think what we have is a, a legacy of tools and practices that were never intended to lift up the folks who lost their homes in a fire and the mission. And at the same time, we do need to be able to prioritize the voices of folks who don't get a seat at the table. So do you have to do that by blocking development projects or can you actually have a meaningful collaborative process for establishing how you want your neighborhood to grow and change over time and set those standards and make them objective standards that then every everybody who comes into that neighborhood understands I can build up to these specifications. There's nothing in state law that precludes the city from doing that. What the city can't do is say, we don't like that particular project because it throws some shadows into this person's backyard. That was Spur Planning Policy Director Sujita Srivastava, Mission Local Inequality Reporter Anika Hum, and Assembly Member Matt Haney in a panel discussion hosted by KALW Executive Producer Ben Trefney. You can find the entire hour-long discussion online at KALW.org. And we have more in-person events coming up at our pop-up space downtown, but only for another month. Find out more at KALW.org slash 220 Montgomery. Cross Currents. I'm Lisa Morehouse, in for Hanat Baba. As we just heard, housing in San Francisco is a community issue, a planning issue, and an equity issue. And some say it's also a healthcare issue. Three years ago, the city was loosening COVID restrictions and winding down its shelter-in-place hotel program for people experiencing homelessness. Many of them were moved into what is called permanent supportive housing, city-run housing with on-site social services. With over 9,000 units, San Francisco has the second highest rate of supportive housing units per capita in the nation. In 2021, KALW's Angela Johnston met a family doctor who believes housing should be prescribed and has spent his whole career in the Tenderloin to make that happen. So this building uh, is the largest permanent supportive housing facility in San Francisco. I meet Dr. Josh Bamberger on Golden Gate and Leavenworth in the Tenderloin. 172 units. Uh, and it was built from the old YMCA, which was built to house people who lost their housing after the 1906 earthquake. As we zigzag up Golden Gate, Eddie, and Ellis, he points out various clinics he worked at and started. This is St. Anthony Free Clinic. His first job out of residency. I was the pediatrician here in 1992. 
So every, you know, every building has these stories of different eras. And if you look at everything from a health lens, you're like, well, this had some things going on. Things that show the history between city-run housing and healthcare. We pass a tall, narrow building with cursive letters that spell out the lyric. This was the earliest generation of permanent supportive housing that happened in San Francisco. It's something called the like Health Housing Integrated Services, HHIS, or something. it even predates me. One of the first times the San Francisco public health system considered the importance of housing was in the late 80s and 90s. And that had a lot to do with the AIDS epidemic gripping the city. Bamberger says when he was starting his medical career in the Tenderloin, he wished he could offer something more to his sickest patients experiencing homelessness. We would always be brokering housing or saying, oh, if we could only get this person housed, as they cycled in and out of the emergency department to streets and to shelter and then back to the emergency department. Had no idea that that was even an option. He says it really took his patients to teach him how important housing as a treatment option could be. Bamberger points to a time during the 90s when he was caring for people with HIV experiencing homelessness. And yet, even when people were taking their medicines, they weren't doing nearly as well as the people who were housed. And then you'd have the few people who get housed through hook or by crook, and they're like, hey, they're doing great. AIDS becomes a chronic disease, and they're living a full length of life. So it was through those experiences that it became clear that if I didn't have a way to basically prescribe housing in addition to antiretrovirals, then people wouldn't get better. And then a director with a similar vision was appointed to the Department of Public Health. Dr. Bamberger says that between 1999 and 2013, the health department created 150 new units of housing a year through the healthcare system, making San Francisco's health department the first in the country to prescribe housing. And they'd refer it to patients they thought needed it. Here's how it worked. We would get referrals from social workers who are doing outreach, social workers who are in the hospitals, and they would send us a story. And a nurse practitioner would go visit them and even listen to their lungs with a stethoscope to see how sick they were. And then based on that assessment, we would prioritize them towards the limited number of vacancies that we had. It didn't catch everyone, but Dr. Bamberger says the system was working. Still, in the last decade, housing moved out of the health department. And then we stopped. And then it shifted all to a different part of the city government, to more of the human services agency, and now it's part of a homeless sector. But when COVID hit, the pendulum swung back, for a year at least. Access to housing is still part of the homelessness department, but healthcare has been more of a priority. The city did major outreach to find the most medically at risk, elderly and people with underlying conditions, and offer them housing in San Francisco's shelter-in-place hotels. Over 3,000 people moved off the streets and into their own rooms and started getting regular medical check-ins. First of all, people didn't die. The mortality rate was almost two and a half times as high among the people who are on the streets. So, you know, you don't have to go to medical school to know that death is something you're trying to avoid in medicine. Um, and that's a good outcome, right? You know, it's a fantastic argument why healthcare and housing need to be integrated. Doctors and nurses essentially did house calls to each room and got a sense of the health of the city's most vulnerable, unhoused population. Every single one of them. In a, in a way that we've, you know, in these 30 years, we've never done sort of a survey of medical needs among homeless people in San Francisco. And through this big assessment, Bamberger says they found out something important. Most seniors do fine when they're given access to existing permanent supportive housing. 
But they also learn that a very small percentage, about only 140 people, need a kind of extra medical care that isn't super widespread outside of the city's temporary shelter-in-place hotels. And what we need to figure out is a way to catch those people on the streets or in shelter or already housed and have a way to move them to a, the next level of care so that they, as their dementia progresses or their congestive heart failure progresses and they can't even take a few steps without being short of breath, that they have someone on site to assist them. If someone is unhoused and has a condition like dementia or incontinence or another health problem that gets worse with age, there aren't many options out there. This small number of seniors who need extra care may only be a few hundred right now, but he expects that group will also get bigger. The median age of San Francisco's unhoused population is increasing. It was 37 back in the 90s, now it's closer to 50. And more and more people are entering homelessness at an older age. If we can't figure out how to find this level of care for people who are too sick to live independently, but not sick enough to need a nursing home, if we can't solve that problem, there's just gonna be an inordinate amount of suffering among our seniors. And it seems, again, to not be a huge problem. It's a relatively small number of people that we just have to figure out a way to do that. And uh, not doing so is just a failure. The challenge, he says, is figuring out how to pay for it. Dr. Bamberger hopes a new mobile nursing team outlined in this year's city budget could be a first step. In San Francisco, I'm Angela Johnston for Cross Currents. Angela reported that story as part of the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2021 California Fellowship. That was part two of a three-part series. You can find the rest online at KALW.org. The Cross Currents team includes Steffi Puerto, Cheryl Kaskowitz, James Rollins, Gonady Joe Johnson, Victor Tense, Shireen Adel, Marissa Ortega Welch, Angela Johnston, Suni Halid, and Ben Trefney. Our opening theme music is by the John Santos Quintet, as interpreted by Daoud Anthony. For Cross Currents, I'm Lisa Morehouse.